1: the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Theresa May and other government ministers have cited the opportunities for enhanced trade with Commonwealth countries as one of the positive consequences of leaving the EU. The network of mostly former British colonies accounts for a relatively small share of British exports compared to the EU, but they argue this means the potential for growth is great. They point out that Commonwealth countries represent a third of the world's population and many, like India, have fast-growing economies. But how realistic is this? I'm joined down the line to discuss this by Alan Beattie, the FT's European editorial writer in Brussels, and Emily Jones of the Bavatnik School of Government in Oxford. First, let's listen to a couple of interviews we recorded earlier. We asked the FT's correspondent Jamie Smith for the view from Sydney on the UK's post-Brexit trade ambitions.
2: If the UK decides to leave the EU Customs Union, countries like Australia, Canada and New Zealand are certainly open to expanding trade with the UK. And they've all signalled that they will begin talks on free trade deals. But there's also an appreciation that the British economy is just a sixth of the size of the European Union and so I think it's no surprise that Malcolm Turnbull, Australia's Prime Minister, and Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand's Prime Minister, are both meeting German Chancellor Angela Merkel this week to lobby for the start of EU free trade talks. Their immediate priority is opening the European Union's single market for their exports and a UK free trade deal is really of secondary concern. I think there's also a sense of disappointment within the business and political community in these countries that the UK is actually leaving the European Union. Australian and New Zealand companies tend to use Britain as a launchpad for accessing the European Union, typically through uh, EU headquarters, which are based in London. And Brexit means some of these companies, particularly finance companies, are having to recalibrate their European strategies, moving operations to other countries such as Ireland or Germany. I think the historic ties to the Commonwealth have really only limited benefit in terms of trade, as most political leaders have to be pragmatic about managing their economies. In other words, they're following the money. For Australia, New Zealand and even Canada, you know the fast-growing Asian region is far more critical to their future growth prospects than the UK. These countries have signalled this recently by joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Australia and New Zealand both have free trade deals with China – which is now either their biggest or their second biggest trade partner. The UK simply can't compete with this. However, it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to the UK's Commonwealth partners. Britain remains a large market. It's the sixth biggest economy in the world. It also shares a common language, commitment to the rule of law, a similar liberal philosophy and a business culture as many of these modern developed Commonwealth nations. So this makes it easier to do business and makes the UK attractive as a destination for investment from these countries. But trade deals are really two-way agreements offering benefits to both parties. And uh, to win freer access to Commonwealth countries' markets, the UK will have to make concessions itself. Post-Brexit, Australia and New Zealand will want to sell more agricultural products in the UK. So they will attempt to force London to cut the tariff barriers and the subsidies which have protected British farmers over the last 40 to 50 years under the EU's Common Agricultural Policy. And this is going to make life difficult for smaller UK farmers, who will find it tricky to compete with the really huge farms that you tend to get in Australia and even in New Zealand. Another potential sticking point in future free trade deals is immigration. Many Commonwealth countries want better access to business visas. They wanna get more access to the UK market for professionals such as engineers, doctors, IT professionals, finance professionals. India has already stated this openly that it really wants the UK to relax its migration rules as part of any future trade agreement that it does. But this is really politically difficult for London because it's placed controlling immigration at the forefront of its post-Brexit plans.
1: In our second clip, we hear from economist Gitanjali Nataraj, who was interviewed by the FT's Jotsna Singh in Delhi, about how open India might be to improve trade with the UK. Probably we
0: feel that the UK would have been better off being a part of the European Union. we feel it's more isolated now. Right now, India's foreign policy focuses more on Uh, look east and act east, we are trying to enhance our uh, strategic ties with most of the ASEAN countries, that's where our focus is. We are traditionally very good partners with Japan, so we are looking at geopolitics in the region, and we would like to be close to Australia, the United States, Japan, the Quad Group, and act as a counterbalance to China. And I think our foreign relations or foreign policy is not so much focused on the European Union or the UK at this point in time. Our trade relations with UK has always been very good, though trade has declined in the last couple of years. Only good thing that has happened is that Indian investments to the UK have increased substantially. A lot of Indian businessmen are looking to the UK now with the pound uh, depreciating. In services, we are looking for entry for Indian service professionals in the UK. And I think if UK can give that to India, I think we could negotiate a comprehensive India-UK trade partnership, which would also include investment. And once we start negotiating a comprehensive bilateral agreement, only then we would know what are the issues, you know. That would need more time or that would be more time consuming. As I said, India is hell bent on getting entry for its service professionals. That could be an area of concern and India is probably may not be so open to giving market access to automobiles, vines, etc.
1: These are areas of concern. So Alan, none of this seems particularly encouraging. Do these views coincide with your own feeling about the potential for trade with larger Commonwealth
3: economies? Yes, I'm afraid to say they do. It's not just the arithmetic effect that even the big economies aren't that huge compared to the EU, and also the fact that they're a long way away and, you know, distance still matters a lot in trade, It's the fact that the Commonwealth is not a single trading bloc and nowhere near a single trading bloc. You know, back under the British Empire, there was a sterling area. It was quite easy to trade within the empire. That's all splintered and gone, of course. And so what you have is a bunch of very disparate economies who aren't particularly linked to each other, except in one or two cases, like Australia and New Zealand. Now, you contrast that with the EU, which is not just a much bigger economy and not just only 22 miles away across the English Channel, but also is a single market. You know, once you're in the EU, you have immediate access to the second biggest consumer market in the world, half a billion consumers and all the supply chains that go with it. The Commonwealth just doesn't have anything like that. And I genuinely don't know a serious trade analyst or economist who thinks that the Commonwealth can replace the trade that you'd lose from leaving the EU.
1: So is there any potential at all in the case of Canada for instance?
3: Well, I mean, you know, the, the European Union already has a deal with Canada which has just been ratified and recently went into force. So what the UK will be doing, essentially, is running to catch up and signing its own deal with Canada, but its own deal with Canada will probably look quite a lot like the EU one, possibly a bit weaker, actually, because, of course, it has less to offer Canada in terms of market size than the EU does. So, you know, the UK trades somewhat with Canada. It will continue to trade with Canada, but I don't see where the potential for increase is with Canada, given that it will have to try to replicate the EU deal with Canada, and I think it will find it very hard to go beyond it.
1: Um, Now, countries like Japan have suggested that the easiest way for the UK to boost trade with Asian countries would be to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What's your view on this?
3: Well, that would be interesting. (laughs) I guess they'd have to rename it, right, because by no means is the UK a Trans-Pacific country. But... No, the problem with this is the TPP was essentially a US-led project. Now, of course, it isn't anymore because Donald Trump pulled the US out of it and he's reaffirmed this week that he doesn't want to go back in. Nonetheless, it bears the imprint of the US upon it. In particular, it seeks to try and export a lot of the US rules on regulation and things like that. Those are quite different from the EU approach. So I think it would be quite difficult to be a signatory to the TPP and have the kind of close trading relationship with the EU that the UK will want in order to keep that trade going. So, you know, politically and economically, it strikes me as as somewhat unlikely.
1: Just to come back to one thing you touched on, Alan, which is distance. How much of a drawback is distance to Britain's global trade ambitions?
3: Well, you know something, distance in trade or the gravity effect, as economists call it, is one of those very unusual things in economics where we're a lot more sure of the facts than we are of the theory in that you can measure, you know, how much countries trade with each other compared with how close they are. And the fascinating thing about this is not only is there a strong effect, there's a strong distance effect, but that it appears to have remained constant over the decades. So even the advent of things like containerization from the 60s and 70s onwards, the digitization of supply chains from the 90s and so on onwards, improvements in communications and logistics and transport and all of these things, don't really seem to have made that much of a difference. You know, the further away you are from another economy, other things being equal, the less you are likely to trade with it. And that's true even when you've taken the kind of the bare costs of transport into account. Interestingly, the same is true with services. You would think all services could be delivered remotely or a lot of services could be delivered remotely. But in reality, that only really appears to be true of quite basic services like call centres, which, you know, the UK doesn't really export anyway. So unfortunately, that is true. You know, you could do a certain things with the Commonwealth but actually moving the countries physically closer is not one of them. So that will continue to be a constraint on trading with the Commonwealth or indeed any far-flung country.
1: Now Emily, revelations that some of the people who arrived in the UK from the Commonwealth 70 years ago as children were now being incorrectly classed as illegal immigrants has been highly embarrassing for the government just a few days ahead of the Commonwealth summit. How much of an obstacle to improve trade with Commonwealth countries is UK immigration policy, in your opinion?
4: I think the government's response to the recent revelations is hugely damaging, actually, for its overall trade agenda, as well as for trade with Commonwealth countries. First and foremost, we have to think of our relations with the EU. And obviously, the future of EU citizens living in the UK has been a particular point of contention and concern for EU countries we're negotiating with. And I think this will do nothing to allay their fears there are real genuine concerns about how the UK government will treat these citizens. Coming to the Commonwealth, obviously the most affected countries are in the Caribbean and Africa. The Windrush generation came from the Caribbean, but we've also got people who've originated from Ghana and Uganda and other countries. Now, for historical reasons, many of these countries have got strong trade ties with the UK. And they were already worried before the current debacle that they'd be left last in the queue when it came to the UK's post-Brexit trade agenda. And again, I think they'll be rightly concerned that the UK is going to brush them off.
1: Britain's International Trade Secretary Liam Fox and International Development Secretary Penny Mordant have argued that leaving the EU offers the chance for a new inclusive approach to trade with poorer Commonwealth countries to the benefit of both sides. What's your view on that?
4: So the UK government has a reputation for being very strong on the trade and development agenda. And I think many countries will welcome its continued prioritisation of the development agenda on UK future trade policy. I think the challenge for the UK is going to be going beyond what the EU already provides. The EU is already relatively generous to developing countries, including Commonwealth countries. So the UK has two challenges. First, to make sure that Brexit doesn't lead to the disruption of trade with those countries. And then secondly, to improve the trade relations. And to give you two examples there, the first challenge is going to be to minimise the harm from Brexit. Many of these Commonwealth countries trade with the UK through EU trade agreements, which will cease to apply upon Brexit. Now, thankfully, and I think it's been welcomed by Commonwealth countries, the UK has promised to replicate and continue those trade arrangements. But that's not the only barrier or impediment that could arise from Brexit for Commonwealth developing countries. Another concern is that if the UK's, for example, product regulations diverge from those of the EU, that introduces a new trade barrier. So, for example, if you're a horticultural producer in Africa and you currently supply the UK market as well as other EU markets, post-Brexit you might have to meet new product standards if ours diverge from those of other EU countries. So there's quite a lot to be done to actually minimise the harm that arises from Brexit for Commonwealth countries. Beyond that, there are steps the UK can take to improve our trade agenda with Commonwealth countries, for example, in rules of origin. So some of the sort of devil in the detail of trade agreements that make trade actually in reality quite difficult for exporters from developing countries. One concern I have with the UK's sort of future agenda is that there's an emphasis on sort of trade rather than aid. And here, I think that might be misplaced. So far, I think the emphasis has been on opening up further the UK's markets to exports from developing countries. And while that's all well and good, many of the factors that constrain developing countries from exporting actually require money, require aid to overcome them. So for example, high electricity costs or poor road infrastructure is often just as much of an impediment as barriers to accessing other markets.
1: Ministers have also argued that Britain has a new opportunity to help drive intra-regional trade in Africa after Brexit. How realistic is this in your view?
4: So again, I think it's a goal that's to be welcomed. Intra-regional trade is important. Within Africa, intra-regional trade is low. So for development reasons, it needs to be supported to grow. I think the issue here for the UK is to really learn from the European Union on this. The EU, since the early 2000s, has tried to negotiate free trade agreements with regions within Africa with a view to strengthening their regional integration. And in many ways, this has backfired and arguably disrupted regional trade integration on the continent. So, for example, the free trade agreement between the EU and West Africa, Nigeria, the largest economy in the region, has opted out. So although the region is trying to integrate and include Nigeria in its regional integration, Nigeria is not now in the free trade agreement between that region and the EU. So I think for the UK, I think the big lesson that comes out of that experience is that regional integration is really something that needs to be built from the bottom up. It's not something that negotiating a free trade agreement with a third party necessarily reinforces. So to my mind there again, it's some of the more modest steps, for example, supporting customs, collaboration, improving transport infrastructure. A lot of the work the UK government already does can be strengthened and built upon rather than thinking about negotiating free trade deals as being the way to achieve that regional integration.
1: Alan, do you have anything to add to
3: this? No, I mean, I very much agree with that. that I think there's Trade in general, not just with developing countries, but particularly with developing countries, there's this obsession with signing trade deals as though that's the be-all and end-all. And when the UK has made a big deal about development in the past and trade in the past, and thinking of Tony Blair's initiatives, for example, they did talk about the volume of aid, but they also talked an awful lot about trade and trade access. And I remember talking to an African trade minister at the time, and he just shrugged and said, you know, look, we're already pushing at an open door in the EU. We can already export to the EU. It's just that we don't have enough to sell and we don't have means of getting it to port and we don't have means of getting it to market. And that's really what needs to be sorted rather than trade deals. And that's a really slow, painful, difficult, uncertain thing to do. And most of the onus for that is on the countries themselves, not on the end market.
1: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Emily Jones and Alan Beatty and thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks and we hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com.